Hello and welcome to All Tamar, where every other week we navigate the high seas of global politics. I'm Muni Jensen. And I'm Peter Schechter. In Afghanistan, at this very moment, U.S. and international troops are pulling out and the Taliban troops are marching in, marching in city after city, and tens of thousands of Afghans are on the move to escape the Taliban and the refugee crisis in Kabul is reeling out of control. The Biden administration has decided to withdraw its forces after nearly two decades of involvement. Afghanistan has long been known as the graveyard of empires, and we'll take a look at where the country is today and where we can expect it to go after the U.S. troops withdraw. Later on, we'll talk to an old friend, Eddie Girardet, whose history in Afghanistan goes back decades. And Afghanistan has always been in the colonial and geopolitical crossfires. During the Cold War, it was the battleground between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And remember that the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979, only to get beaten back successfully. Russian troops withdrew from the country in 1989. And only 13 years after the Soviets left, after al-Qaeda's attack on the United States, America headquartered the War on Terror in Afghanistan. Thousands of casualties of both sides military, special forces, and civilian deaths have accumulated over the centuries with absolutely no end in sight. Brown University estimates that U.S. spent $978 billion in Afghanistan, and more importantly, 2,300 troops have lost their lives and over 20,000 more were injured. Muni, who are the Taliban? They're a highly radicalized Sunni warriors and mostly Pashto-speaking. But they're not a cohesive group. There's lots of tribal and geographical divisions. Let's remember that these were the former Mujahideen, which were the U.S.-founded Cold War allies that turned violent extremists, and they ruled until 2001. And after the 9-11 attacks, they were beaten back by the United States. Last year, President Trump signed an agreement with them, which helped U.S. security interests, but it sure didn't stop the attack on civilians back home. And now the region is terrified. Since May, the Taliban control now many of the regions around the borders with Shia-led Iran, with Uzbekistan, with Tajikistan, with Pakistan. China is especially worried about a Taliban takeover because Afghanistan borders on Shanjing province where Xi Jinping has confined hundreds and thousands of Uyghur Muslims to re-education camps. We read every day about the chaos engulfing Afghanistan, just proving that bringing the troops home was a terrible idea, Peter, and what will likely end poorly. Most experts are now very concerned about the gift this is for terrorist groups beyond its borders. And what does it say for the U.S. other than it pulls out when it's losing ground and is so preoccupied at home with a very inward-looking foreign policy that it makes an unreliable actor in combating terrorism? We've already seen the desperate attempts to leave the country by allies, including translators, healthcare workers, and other people who've been strong supporters of the U.S. troops. And with the Taliban marching forward, what will happen to women, the first victims of the Taliban's fanatical extremism? What is Plan B for the U.S.? I really fear the worst that the table is set for an even longer civil war in the region, and the spillage will go far beyond the country. And in particular, Pakistan's stability will be endangered as well. Muni, that's a doomsday scenario, but you know, a quick read of history shows that it's really no surprise at all that the country has just worn down the United States because Afghanistan has beaten back one empire after another, first the British, then the Soviets, and now the Americans. 
And after all, what choice did Biden have? I say 20 years of trying to fix an unfixable country is enough. Is it really such a critical strategic place for the United States? Because if you look just around at what's happening when we speak, as they march on, the Taliban are already creating this parallel Islamic emirate of Afghanistan, funded in large part by regional mafia partners and heroin drug lords. They're dedicated to oppressing women, persecuting journalists and activists, and threatening Western-oriented Afghan citizens. Sure, I, I get that it's hard to leave the country to bleed under the relentless attacks of the Taliban. But how long should the U.S. have stayed? How many more lives? How many more billions? Look, I'm sure we could go on with this disagreement forever, but let's turn to Taya for a look at how this U.S. pullout is going to affect civilian life and particularly the lives of women and girls. I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at social justice and youth issues. So I really want to take a look at women in Afghanistan and whatever happens once the U.S. withdraws will not bode well for Afghan women. When the Taliban governed Afghanistan from 1996 to 2001, it barred women and girls from taking most jobs or going to school. And since then, the United States spent nearly $800 million to promote women's rights in Afghanistan. Though progress has been uneven, girls and women now do make up 40% of students and they've joined the military, the police, they've held political office, they've become internationally recognized singers, competed in the Olympics, and on robotics teams. So all things that were nearly impossible at the turn of the century. So I've actually met the Afghan team of girls competing at an international robotics competition in D.C. a few years ago, and I reported on their unbelievable stories and how they got there. But despite real improvements, Afghanistan remains one of the most challenging places in the world to be a woman. Domestic violence remains an enduring problem, and about 87% of Afghan women and girls experience domestic abuse in their lifetimes. In recent years, education centers are routinely the targets of attacks, and more than a 1,000 schools have closed in recent years. So while everyone is rightfully worried about the politics in the region and all the things that Peter and Muni, you guys discussed, my question is, what happens to life in Afghanistan with the U.S. pulling out? And certainly it's nothing good for women and girls. What do you guys think? Tweet at us at Altamar Podcast and let me know. Life in Afghanistan, especially as Taya mentioned for women, will be unlikely better off with no U.S. presence. I guess it will be up to civil society groups and NGOs to preserve whatever is left for progress and human rights. But we do know what will happen And that is that if the country continues under Taliban control, there will be no progress. Mooney, Afghanistan remains a center of concern. And to help us understand the forces, the risks, the outlook for this volatile country, we're now joined by Edward Girardet, journalist, writer, and producer who has reported widely from humanitarian and war zones in Africa, Asia, and lots of other places. As a foreign correspondent for U.S. News and World Report based in Paris, he first began covering Afghanistan several months prior to the Soviet invasion in 1979. Since then, he has traveled throughout the country, often by foot, and he'll tell us about that. And he's written and edited several books, including Afghanistan, the Soviet War. He's produced numerous television and current affairs segments and documentaries. Girardet is currently the editor of Crosslines Global Report and president of the International Center for Humanitarian Reporting, a Geneva-based media foundation. Eddie, we're so pleased to have you 
with us on Altamar for the first time. It's great to be with you. So let's just start it very broad. What's your take on the U.S. withdrawal? And Mooney and I have already disagreed because she thinks it's going to leave a disaster. And I sort of think that it was his last option. So do you think Biden made a mistake? I think he has in the sense that it's basically leaving Afghanistan. Now, whether they will continue with development aid and investment, that's another question. But the message which has gone out is that basically you're on your own. We don't care. We're leaving. And I think that in a sense is a tragedy because we're looking at a war which is not a 20-year war as many people in the States like to refer to it as. It's actually uh, running well into its fifth decade. And the U.S. actually became involved back in July 1979 when it first began supporting the Mujahideen. This is prior to the Soviet invasion, which was in December 1979. And of course, throughout the 1980s, the U.S. supported the Afghan guerrillas and so on and so forth. When the Soviets left, the Americans also left. The whole thing collapsed into chaos, you know, with the civil war, and then eventually the, the Taliban came. And then, of course, when the U.S. intervened in October uh, 2001, they intervened in the wrong way. I think they confused the Taliban with al-Qaeda. The two are totally different. And uh, also by leading a, a major military intervention without thought, I think, for the future, that's we have to look back to that period when, in fact, that was a time when they should have launched a major martial plan, which wouldn't have cost that much given what has been now spent. One of the questions being debated in the United States, if you read you know, a lot of American newspapers, is that we're abandoning you know, a lot of the Afghanis that worked closely with the United States, be it translators, healthcare workers, some of the Western elites in Kabul, and they're now they're being left to fend them for themselves. How is this going to play out? How will those people who have risked their lives for America, what will happen to them? Well, I know there's a lot of debate right now about bringing back the translators. And, you know, there have been many conflicts uh, where, uh, for example, the French in the Algerian War, when they brought back their collaborators, their, their translators and whatnot, but uh, many were killed before that happened. And I think, uh, unfortunately, that may happen also with Afghanistan. Thousands of Afghans have worked and benefited from the uh, U.S.-led intervention in Afghanistan, have, you know, received salaries and so on, but are considered by the Taliban to be the enemy. So the question there is what's going to happen to them? And I know some will be and are being brought to the United States, the same with the UK. However, the, the, I think the long-term question is that the overwhelming majority of Afghans really do not support either the Taliban or the government. And it's basically this segment, this overwhelming segment of the population which is being left out, I think, in the cold. One positive aspect, perhaps, is that when the Soviets left, the regime that was in place, the communist regime, actually survived for three years, fighting very, very hard against the, the, the guerrillas, the Mujahideen, but collapsed almost immediately when the money ran out. So the question is, will the West continue to support Afghanistan financially, by ensuring that people's salaries are, are paid. And this is also one big question. A lot of the troops and police who've 
put down their weapons or cross sides or abandon their posts, uh, did so because they were not being paid. Hedy, it's been called the graveyard of empires, the battleground of empires. You've well described the presence and wearing down of the British, the Soviets, now the Americans. What makes Afghanistan so unique and who's going to fill this space once the U.S. has left? Well, you know, there is a saying that you can never buy an Afghan, you can only rent him. And uh, this is because, I mean, everyone's tried it. The, the Afghans themselves have tried it. The, the Soviets, uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Americans, NATO. Um, the fact is, Afghans traditionally don't like having outsiders in their country unless they are there as guests. If you look back at the past 20 years, you know, a lot has been achieved in the sense of education, in the sense of health programming, in the sense of infrastructure. But from the military point of view, by this pullout, and, and I think this shows a lack of understanding of what Afghanistan is all about, you have to remain committed, in a sense, to enable people to get back on their feet economically, which is what should have happened over the past 20 years and has not happened. And this includes, by the way, the people in the Talib areas, because most of these Talib commanders, their priority is their family, their villages, their community, and only perhaps fourth down the line, the Taliban themselves. So they're looking ahead. You know, they want to know, how are we going to benefit? And I think that's the question now, is that foreign forces have always gone in and have tried a military solution, which has never worked. And uh, so, in, in fact, what we need to look at is a situation whereby there is a sort of a, a Marshall Plan, but also perhaps a, a government involving the Taliban and so on. You uh, know Afghanistan very well, and I think that's even an understatement. And one of your many stories is the interview you held with one of the country's good guys, Shah Massoud, in 1981. And 20 years later, when you were trying to interview again, he was killed by suicide bombers. Tell us mm. a bit about a, what this experience means, what happened, and give us your assessment on what's happened since. Well, you know, people like uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud, who was quite an extraordinary, you know, resistance commander, and I think he was up there, probably one of the greatest 20th century guerrilla commanders alongside, you know, Tito, alongside, you know, Che Guevara, in a sense, uh, I mean, you can go down the line. And Massoud actually, he understood how to do guerrilla warfare. And, but the trouble was, he was representing one group, which is primarily the Tajiks in Afghanistan, they did try and, and include the Pashtuns and other groups. And this has always been the problem in Afghanistan, is that there are too many different on-the-ground peoples, ethnic groups, tribal groups, uh, and it's very, very difficult to unite them. The, the Taliban are primarily Pashtun. And uh, that's also why I think the Taliban, even if they try and take Kabul, they're going to have huge problems doing so because they are so deeply resented by the other ethnic groups like the Tajiks and the Hazaras uh, and so on. Uh, so, you know, people like uh, Massoud, I think, had a vision, but of course that was killed by, uh, destroyed by Al-Qaeda. And no one, there is no leader in Afghanistan today who sort of is capable of bringing together all Afghans. And that's one of the big problems. But Eddie, let me, let me follow up on Mooney's couple of questions. With all of this division within Afghanistan, how can you expect western powers to invest a new marshall plan i mean it seems like the country is unfixable certainly by foreigners but it's unfixable also by 
its own domestic actors. Are you really optimistic that there's going to be a massive investment in rebuilding the country? No, I'm not optimistic, basically. But if you look at Afghanistan from the economic point of view, Afghanistan lies, you know, south of Central Asia, Indian subcontinent uh, to the to the east, uh, Europe to the west, the Gulf countries to the south. It's actually in a, an extremely pivotal situation. And I think an economically viable Afghanistan and one which is at peace could actually change the entire outlook for the for the region by, I mean, you know, the amazing thing is you stand on the border of Herat uh, with Iran and you look toward Iran and you realize that actually you could drive to Europe within three days. I mean, you'd be driving pretty hard and pretty long, but three days, you know, Europe is only three or four days away. You go again to the border with Pakistan and you can drive to India if you like. Railroads are being built or being planned with Afghanistan, whether they will, it will happen or not. But in fact, it is an extraordinary communications link. Also, it has exceptional natural resources like copper. I mean, the Chinese have understood this. The Chinese have built uh, or are still in the process of building one of the world's biggest uh, copper mines in Afghanistan. And it doesn't matter whether the war continues or not, because they'll simply provide security on the rim. But the thing is that it would benefit the Gulf countries, it would benefit India, it would benefit Central Asia, it would benefit Europe if the country were at peace. And also if the war, just very quickly, if the war continues, we're going to see like an ongoing migration of young Afghans, particularly young men, moving or trying to move to Europe. You know, So I think there is a very strong argument to actually try and make Afghanistan work. So f- for our listeners, can you just take a moment, let's step back and who are the Taliban and who are the Tajiks and who are the Hazaras, which make up the three main ethnic tribe? And why are the Taliban and the Pashtuns so not only a majority, but also sort of the real dominant force? Well, I'm glad you have a couple of hours for me to explain this. <laughs> <laughs> no, basically, the Taliban are primarily Pashtun. And, uh, you know, the Pashtun themselves are divided into clans and they. They tend to be in the eastern areas of Afghanistan, but also in the north, because way back, the, the former government moved a lot of Pashtuns, transplanted them to northern areas to try and create more of a balance. And the Taliban themselves, they are a movement. They are not an organized, a highly organized group. You have a lot of divisions with the, within the Taliban, and that's what we always seem to forget. Uh, there are also the Peshawar groups of the Taliban. There are the uh, Quetta groups in Balochistan of the Taliban. And the only thing which is giving a semblance of an organized movement is the fact that right now they're making headway militarily. I think we can look at that sort of collapsing a bit later on as the disputes arise. Uh, the Tajiks are more Mediterranean-type people. They're more in the north and Kabul. The Panjshiris, for example, where Masood came from, they were always traditionally truck drivers. So they always had a, a sense of openness to the world, merely by the fact that they were always traveling. The Hazaras in central Afghanistan are Shia. They're like the Iranians. And they're Mongolian featured. Some say they go back to the days of of Genghis Khan. So the the country is is a very, very mixed country. And, you know, the the main official language is Dari or Persian. A lot of Pashtuns speak Pashtu, but not necessarily Persian. So, you know, you're looking at a lot of differences. But, But the big thing to remember now is that Afghanistan over the past 20 years has changed enormously, particularly amongst the young people. They, most of them have social media, 
And this, I think, is one of the big changes uh, amongst the young people. Hedy, you were once described as being a romantic about Afghanistan. What was the last time you were there? And what is your feeling about what the situation is, which it, many agree is getting worse? Well, I was there about five, six years ago was the last time. And um, unfortunately, even when I went back repeatedly during the early 2000s and 2010, 11, I, I, I always wanted to go out and, and hike in the mountains because I felt driving around, I was not seeing the real Afghanistan. And I did make a couple of treks, but you know, the, the times have changed. Uh, it's simply too dangerous. And I, I do remain an, a complete and utter romantic about Afghanistan. It's, it's an extraordinarily beautiful country, you know, very high mountains, the Hindu Kush. And in many ways, despite having been so difficult during the 1980s and 90s to report in Afghanistan, it was also a privilege because, you know, you were able to trek for days through the mountains, 16 hours a day. You slept in villages, you met people, and people respected that because they realized it was not the easiest thing to walk into Afghanistan. With a vehicle and with embedded, you know, reporting and so on, you don't see what really what is happening in the country. And that's, I think, one of the big problems also for journalists today. A lot of challenges in being a correspondent anywhere these days. Yes, absolutely. What about the neighborhood? What impact does the chaos and war, which most people expect, what impact will it have on Afghanistan's neighbors, in particular Pakistan, Iran, and also others? Well, the Indian and Pakistani involvement in Afghanistan has always been linked more to Kashmir than to Afghanistan itself. And, you know, we keep talking about Afghanistan being a great game, and this great game continues. I mean, everyone is playing their own games. I think the Pakistanis could have long ago done something about the Taliban or the Pashtuns or the groups or, you know, the terrorism, but th they won't because their ISI, which is the uh, inter-service intelligence, the military intelligence, they've been making a lot of money out of uh, Pakistan. And the Indians are not necessarily concerned about Afghanistan. They're more concerned as, about how it's going to affect Pakistan. So we're seeing that. Ironically, by the way, uh, the Russians are actually becoming or have become more involved in Afghanistan again, but from the development and investment point of view, and probably also from the drug trafficking point of view as well. That's another huge factor. You're dealing with mafiosi, some posing as Taliban and so on. It's become very, very complicated. Uh, Central Asia, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, they still look at Afghanistan as being the potential link to the, the Gulf countries, because, you know, there's a lot of business in the Gulf countries with, the, the, with uh, Dubai and Saudi Arabia. So if the war continues, I think we'll just see no real progress economically in many of these directions. But, you know, the Indians and the Pakistanis, they have always bickered like, you know, spoiled brats and uh, are continuing to do so. And they're using Afghanistan as just one of their many fronts while doing this. So, you know, I think, I think they need to assume the responsibilities as well. Eddie, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but I want to go a little deeper. Our our colleague, Taya Ivanovich, had talked a little bit about sort of the situation of women in Afghanistan and how it's improved over the last 20 years with you know many millions of investment from the US and Europe. What happens to women now with this withdrawal? I want to certainly, we understand the military impact. What happens to women? Are we going to see a return to a brutal situation for Afghani women? 
I, I think we'll see a diverse picture, really. Uh, I think some of the areas which have been recently taken over by the Taliban, there has been a pushback against, against the women. But the extraordinary thing is that over the past 20 years, we've seen a lot of girls being educated, a lot of women now running their own jobs, getting into professions which they were never able to do so before. I think the Taliban would have huge problems to try and reverse all that. And again, you know, and particularly in the cities, Kabul, Herat, Jalalabad, you know, the women have made a lot of progress, but they are nervous. And, you know, a lot of the women, the journalists, the, the, the politicians, the ones who've been speaking out have been getting killed left and right, murdered. And not just, by the way, by the Taliban, but also by elements linked to the government. There are a lot of Afghans who do not want women to assume positions of responsibility. And it's not necessarily just a Pashtun thing. But I think, you know, there has been enormous progress. And I think there's one thing to remember that, in fact, when the Afghans did revolt against the, the communists in the late 1970s, it was actually a girl high school in Kabul, which led the first demonstration. And I always love to mention this to Afghan friends of mine, particularly men, and saying it was actually the girls who were out there first, not you guys. <laughs> And, you know, I think you're dealing, Afghan women, they are a, quite a formidable force. And, you know, they're not going to easily give up what they've gained over the past years, particularly education-wise. And I think also a lot of Taliban, the commanders, they also want their girls to be educated because you have this very long argument. They don't want male doctors to look at their women. So you say, well, who's going to train the doctors? You need to have women doctors. And they'll say, oh, okay, that's okay. And then I, you say, well, what about teachers? Well, someone needs to teach the girls. And they say, oh, okay, that's okay. So you go down the list, and even the hardline conservatives recognize that women, that girls need to be educated to an extent. But, you know, I, I think it's going to be quite difficult if the Taliban do try and clamp down in the cities. The countryside is another, another question. Let me just end. You've taken us on a great tour, a cultural, geographic, ethnic tour of Afghanistan, Eddie. Let me ask you a, a, we're running out of time, a short question, which many are predicting sort of an imminent civil war. W what does Afghanistan look like in five years? Well, I hope there won't be a civil war. I think, unfortunately, you will see civil war elements, you know, occurring in a lot of places. I think it really, a lot is going to depend on the message the West now gives, you know, saying, okay, we will be willing to continue to support Afghanistan economically, including everyone that there will be benefits, but this has to be made clear. And I think that is still the intention of the West, but it's not being made clear. And the Taliban need to understand that unless they also, you know, give up certain things, uh, they're not going to get this economic backing. And in the end, I can tell you, most Afghans uh, want to be able to make a living. They want to be able to see their kids go to school. They want to have access to health. And if the message is made very, very clear that this is not going to happen, if the war continues, then, you know, that would be an interesting way of, of things developing. However, this has to be made very, very clear. And right now it's not being made clear because I think the West has not quite decided what it wants to do with Afghanistan. And I think the, the whole military aspect of withdrawal, I mean, also remember that um, the, the West has not been fighting in Afghanistan since 2014. It's always maintained uh, a force which has been primarily doing training and of course, you know, uh, air support, of which, which is also a factor. I think they want to continue providing air support, but from outside the country. 
I'm not sure if that's going to happen. But um, the Taliban are, are aware of this, and they they're they're quite uh, clear that you know if the Western support continues in one way or another, they will not get what they want that easily. Eddie Girardet, thank you so much for joining us on Altamar. It's great. It, it is a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Mooney, after listening to 20 minutes of the romantic mess that Afghanistan is and has always been, do you still believe that U.S. and international troops and Western troops should have stayed and forever stabilized and forever continued to give blood and money to a country which seems unfixable to me? I will answer with um, a phrase that's usually attributed to democracy in that this was the worst idea ever with the exception of all other ideas. So I do think that kind of sums it up. And that's that's all I can say about it. Yeah, well, that's very Churchillian of you since that was Winston Churchill's phrase. I, exactly. I, uh, I hope that Eddie is right and that Western that the West continues to be dedicated to trying to improve and at least stabilize the gains that have been made. And I think we've talked about in particular the gains for women, but all young people have really changed in Afghanistan over the last years. We've run out of time. Thank you very much for being with us. You can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.